Hi, everybody. This is Lee. I'm here with Bob and Jerry. We are One New Man Ministries. We are an Ephesians 2 ministry, a ministry of Messianic Gentiles and Messianic Jews. Oh, that's Christians, believers in Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. And we study the Old Testament together with the New Testament from a point of view of Yeshua trying to see what the Old Testament conceals and the New Testament reveals about our Lord and Savior. For as Ephesians 2.14 says, For he is our peace, and his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So what are we going to study today, Jerry? Well, let me start off again by saying good morning, guys. Happy to be here with you, and good morning to all of you who are listening. And welcome you all of uh, who will be listening in the future at uh, the podcast. We're just so glad you're all aboard. Um, I was drawn to a verse that I'd like to share before we get started, just to kind of remind ourselves and everybody else when we talk about Yeshua, uh, what it is we're talking about. And I'd like to... Uh, talk about uh, Acts chapter 4, and uh, this is Peter and John. They're being interrogated by the Sanhedrin, and uh, they're speaking up for why it is that they're uh, proclaiming the name of Jesus, Yeshua, uh, out around Jerusalem, and why it is that uh, it's going to be very hard to keep them quiet. Uh, here's what they said, and let's remember uh, our uh, understanding of this name of this incarnate God in Hebrew is Yeshua. And Yeshua is the Hebrew word that means salvation. And when uh, the angel appeared to Joseph, remember, he said, you will name him Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. In other words, you'll name him salvation because he's going to save his people from their sins. Yeshua becomes Jesus in Greek, and Jesus becomes Jesus in English. And when we make that translational jump, we often lose the connection to the Hebrew word that means salvation. When we read Jesus as English readers, we really ought to be mentally noting salvation. The name of Jesus is salvation. And so in Acts chapter 4, uh, Peter and John being questioned by the, 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 the leaders, the Sanhedrin, they say this to them. This Yeshua, this Jesus, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Isn't that an extraordinary <laughs> word? There is Yeshua in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, Yeshua, 
that means <laughs> salvation. Isn't that just I, the greatest? I, I find it remarkable, Jerry, especially it's just like God saying, here's your Messiah. His name is salvation. Mm-hmm. Isn't that incredible? Yes. Yeah, so I just wanted to lead off with that reminder for ourselves once more. When we, when we get together, in the end, our goal is to promote Yeshua, that he is the Savior of the world. He is the personal Savior that each one of us needs because each one of us is personally responsible for sin and rebellion against the living God. But he is the Savior of the world. He is the deliverer. When we look at all the world system and all the things that are going wrong in every spot on the every corner of the globe, if you can talk about a round thing having corners, but he is the answer to all of the problems. Amen. He is salvation. And Jerry, this the Bible from beginning to end is his story. And you know, I love the way you, when we were talking about uh, his story, you were talking about how it's sort of like an hourglass and how in, in the Old Testament it starts with Noah and his righteousness credited to him because of his trust in God and faith in God through Abraham. And we're going to read about Rebecca you know, Sarah, Isaac, and Rebecca, but it funnels down through David and through eventually all the genealogies to Yeshua. And then the whole reason for Yeshua is that all of that blessing is spread out to all nations in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So it's his story, and we're trying to read it and understand it from the point of view of Yeshua, salvation. Amen. Amen. So we, uh, we are going to talk about uh, the Torah portion, which is uh, Genesis chapter 23 through uh, the first part of Genesis 25. Uh, there's a half Torah portion that is from the... Second Kings, I believe, the beginning of Second Kings, where David is uh, turning over the authority of the kingdom to Solomon. First Kings, I'm sorry. And then uh, we have a New Testament portion, First Corinthians chapter 15, talking about resurrection. What is the thing that kind of plays through all of that? Uh, we've talked about this idea of the seed or the offspring. And... <clears throat> We've noted in the, in the past that the promise that God made at the very beginning to Eve, well, the other way around, actually, this is, this is part of the curse that God put on the serpent. He says to the serpent, <clears throat> uh, the seed of the woman will crush your head. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. The seed of the woman. So this idea of the seed is introduced at the very beginning. This is the uh, first announcement of good news, right? Uh, when, when everything has suddenly fallen apart, God brings good news. And the good news is the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. 
And so the stories in Genesis very often will use that same Hebrew word, zerah, seed, to talk about the offspring and <clears throat> focusing in, once we get to Abraham and his seed, the uh, promise passes from Abraham, not to Ishmael, but to the son of promise, the seed, okay? And so we, we can also uh, follow this, this line of thinking through the scripture then. Uh, we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons. Where, where is the promise of the seed? It's not to his firstborn. And it's not even to his favorite son, Joseph, who does get a double blessing. But the promise of the seed, the king, the ruler over Israel, goes to Judah, right? And so we follow the seed from Judah through Judah's sons. And then you have uh, just the, the, the beautiful story of, of Ruth entering in. And Ruth becomes part of the line of King David. And the seed is passing in the tribe of Judah down to David, and then from David to Solomon, and then through Solomon's sons. And then we can read that whole long genealogy that uh, Matthew puts together following that line all the way down to Jesus, to Yeshua. And so there's, there's that picture then uh, that you, you, were, you were mentioning, Lee, about an hourglass, how God starts with the broadest river of humanity and is keeping, pressing it in, narrowing it down, you know, um, to Noah, to Noah had three sons, to one of those sons, to Terah, to Abraham, narrowing, narrowing, narrowing the, the, the flow of the river, if you will. The banks are, are narrowing until we get to this, this flex point, and that is Yeshua. And from Yeshua, that river begins to broaden out again. The blessing goes from Yeshua. He authorizes 12 men to carry his message. They go out. Peter preaches 3,000 are added. We read in Acts, uh, numbers of the priesthood were, were getting saved daily. And then we read how the gospel jumped uh, into Samaria. And then it jumped uh, into Asia and People are coming who are no longer Jewish, but Gentiles. And then the gospel jumps again over into Europe when Paul gets the Macedonian call and goes to, to uh, Philippi to preach. And so the gospel river <laughs> of blessing, of salvation in Yeshua, gets broader and broader and broader until we're finally brought at the end of Revelation to the picture. Well, who do we see worshiping before the throne of God? Some from every tribe tongue, and nation, all one in Christ, distinct, clearly distinct. Tri every tribe, tongue, and nation is represented. They are identifiable as Jew or Gentile, as American or African, whatever the, that earthly physical distinction might have been. But all of that has been leveled by the acknowledgement that we're all sinners saved by grace. And so the, the seed is one of those threads that you can uh, think about and follow all the way through Scripture. And it's one of the interesting things then that becomes part of today's New Testament portion uh, because Paul is going to talk about 
the resurrection and the resurrection of the body as a type, as a kind of uh, seed that uh, we are planted as perishable seeds, but we're raised as imperishable seeds. Uh, we are planted as uh, physical bodies, but we're raised as spiritual bodies. The, uh, the great thing about this portion of Corinthians resurrection compared with our Torah portion, I think at least at the very outset is this, that it begins with Sarah dying and Sarah being buried in a cave that Abraham buys. But in one sense, Sarah is a seed being planted in the ground. And she is going to be raised in the last day as this immortal, imperishable body. Sarah's seed is in some way, though, reborn. I think this is one of the things that you're trying to bring out, Lee, uh, in Rebecca, that uh, Sarah's um, spiritual motherhood, if you will, uh, is, is kind of reborn into Rebecca to carry on that kind of seed idea. And you were talking about, you know, let's not forget the moms in all of this. Why don't you... Go ahead and share what you're thinking there. Well, you know, the title of the tour portion is Haye Sarah, <laughs> the life of Sarah. And, and it really, it's three chapters, right? It's three or four. It's mm -hmm. a short, it's a rather short tour portion. And it really concentrates on Sarah and Rebecca. And, and I think brings out a blessing on Rebecca to her seed, and mm -hmm. I think shows that uh, after the original sin, all the way back in Genesis 3, the curse that was going to be on the women was pain and childbirth. Procreation was now going to be associated with pain. We are, you know not born in the spirit we are separated from god uh spiritually by our sin and we it requires our salvation and a savior but this seed for salvation for yeshua this this trajectory of the genealogy is sown as you said, all the way back before Abraham, but clearly Abraham, Sarah, and then Rebecca receives the blessing and becomes, like you said, a spiritual mother in a certain way and, and is revered in that way mm -hmm. among Jews. And, um, you know, and yet the the fair thing about the Torah is it shows their failings as human beings too it shows abraham's fa failings as a human being it shows sarah's failing as a human being with hagar and we will see in a little bit you know rebecca's you know child play <laughs> a, a, bit, a bit of a schemer herself yeah a bit of a schemer herself so you know 
God uses flawed human beings to fulfill his plan for salvation for all all created in mm-hmm. image who choose by faith to believe in Yeshua HaMashiach. Yeah. It's a mysterious phrasing, actually, the seed of the woman, because typically we think of seed as coming from the man, right? Um, so the seed of the woman, and so there, there's, we, we do tend to highlight Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but we shouldn't forget that it's the seed of the woman. And so uh, Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel uh, are, are strong parts of the salvation story. And Leah, and Leah. Yeah. And, yeah. In fact, Leah had half of the Jewish nation. Mm-hmm. Well, Leah gave birth to Judah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And Mary. Well, I, I don't want to jump that far ahead, <laughs> but... <laughs> and Bathsheba, who yeah. we talk about mm-hmm. on the Hof tour today, who, you know, gave birth to Solomon. So, I mean, and, and like you uh, noted in the genealogy of Yeshua and Matthew, it, it highlights some important women. Women, you yeah. know. Yeah. And none of us would be here without our mothers. Right. And so we want to encourage our audience uh, who ha- might happen to be mothers, uh, not only with the biblical story of uh, how these women contributed to, to the promotion of salvation, but uh, historically, uh, in, in, in the story of uh, Yeshua followers, uh, there's two women who always stand out in this discussion. One is uh, Monica. Uh, she had a son named Augustine, or maybe you say Augustine. Uh, but she prayed for him and prayed for him and prayed for him until he uh, finally became a Christian. Of course, he became one of the great doctors of the church, one of the great theologians who's contributed uh, so much to our understanding of Scripture. He's the one who famously said, uh, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Uh, the other famous mother that often comes up in discussions then, of course, is Susanna Wesley, uh, who gave birth to uh, Charles and John. Uh, Charles, of course, well, let's start with John. He's probably more well-known. He was a uh, uh preacher, a missionary, and uh, ultimately became the founder of the Methodist Church. His brother Charles was a great hymn writer. He wrote hundreds, if not thousands, of hymns, uh, many of which are, are still sung in the church today. So you mothers have such an important role in bringing up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Um, it's different today uh, culturally and socially than it was uh, long ago as men tended to be outside working to f- produce enough to keep the family going and moms were at home uh, raising children and doing what they did in the household to keep the household going. So moms spent uh, maybe a lot more time with kids than they do today. But uh, that does not negate the importance of the motherly contribution, even if time-wise uh, you're not given the opportunity to spend as much time with your kids as women of old, uh, the contribution that you make is still just as important, just as important, and just as transformational uh, in, in your ability to, 
to live out the gospel truths in your life, to be transformed yourselves uh, in your own Bible study and walk with God, uh, that the more that you are shaped like Christ, the more that goes through to your children. And, you know, God is, God is a faithful God. And uh, our children are are still free moral agents, and they're uh, on their own path. Uh, But, you know, I believe when the Proverbs say, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. I I believe that's a promise from God that we can really put our hands on, put our heart around. So moms, be encouraged. Wherever your kids are today, God sees them. And as Lee pointed out last week about hearing cries, he hears your cry for them. He absolutely does. All right, so we got kind of off track there a little bit, uh, just a bit. But the uh, story in Genesis, we have Sarah's death, which is in chapter 23 and then uh, it's interesting that uh, the whole time that Abraham lived in the land there's only one piece of land that he ever owned and it was a graveyard (laughs) right Uh, he convinced the uh, elders uh, among the Hittites to uh, let him buy a piece of their land it was the only land that he bought and you can actually go to this place in Israel today, uh, Abraham's tomb. Uh, if Well, you used to be able to go there. I'm not sure, <laughs> given the current political situation and what's going on, uh, if you can still visit there. I know that uh, you used to be able to visit it. It is in the West Bank uh, area, and so it probably is off limits for most people these days to be able to visit. But it is still there. After Sarah's death, Abraham is confronted with the reality of the blessing that he's received, knowing that it is to be passed along through Isaac. He recognizes that if Isaac doesn't get married and have a wife and children, then everything's going to die with Isaac. And so as a good father, uh, he arranges to find a bride for his son. So there's this wonderful story uh, that fills up all of chapter 24, how the father Abraham sends out his servant Eliezer to find a bride for his son Isaac. And it begins with Abraham making the servant take an oath and to swear by the Lord, by Hashem, the God of heaven and God of the earth. And I just love, you know, the intention of this passage is not to be theological, but it can't help itself in talking about God uh, that you, you get lines like this, a recognition that Abraham's God is just different. Uh, you had uh, gods of thunder, gods of fire, the God of the sun, the God of the moon, the God of the river. But Abraham's God is not a limited God in any of those fashions. He is the God of heaven and the God of the earth. He is the one who made it all. 
And so he swears by God. Uh, he makes, him, makes his servant swear by God that he will not take a wife for Isaac from any of the Canaanite people. But he makes the servant swear to go back to Abraham's home country, to Abraham's family, and find a bride for his son there. Servant wants to know, well, what if she doesn't want to come? And Abraham says, well, if that's the case, then you are free from this oath. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. That's chapter 24, verse 9. So he goes off <clears throat> and he takes a caravan of camels loaded with uh, indications of Abraham's wealth. I mean, let's be honest. He, he loads it up with uh, <clears throat> uh, the, the, the uh, gifts that he's going to bring to, to the family. Uh, choice gifts, it says, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers. So uh, as the servant Eliezer is traveling, it's clear from the size of his caravan and the nature of his gifts that he is representing a very wealthy person. Okay. Uh, he comes to the city of Nahor, and here he initiates his own plan of how this is going to come about. And it is a plan rooted in his faith in Abraham's God, Hashem, because he is praying his heart out. <laughs> right? He, he wants Abraham's God to bless Abraham. And that's really the, the, the underlying principle of this prayer, I think. And so he prays in this way, verse 12, O Hashem, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show your chesed, your steadfast love to my master Abraham. So notice this prayer. I'd like success, but it's not for my benefit. It's so that you will demonstrate your chesed, your steadfast love for Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water. The daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall respond saying, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her, let that woman be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown chesed, again, by this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So his prayer is, I'm going to a city. There's a whole bunch of people that I have no clue who they are or who they belong to. Here's what I need you to do, Lord. Not for my sake, but for my master, Abraham. Please let the young woman who comes to me and says, would you like a drink and can I, can I give your camels a drink also? Please let that one be the one. Okay? Well, what do you know? <laughs> so quickly. <laughs> what do you know? Before he'd finished speaking, Rebekah, born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother. Here comes a girl, Rebekah, from Abraham's family, just like he wanted, a wife from my family. Comes out with a water jar on her shoulder, and she's attractive, very attractive in appearance. A maiden whom no man had known, 
excuse me, I lost my place there and just thinking about it. Uh, she went down to the spring, filled her jar and came up. The servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, drink. And she quickly let down her jar. When she'd finished giving him a drink, she also said, I will draw water for your camels until they've finished drinking. So she emptied her jar into the trough, ran to the well to draw water, drew for the camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Well, that's kind of interesting. And I think right there we have a little picture of ourselves in prayer. We pray to God, and then it is so apparent that God has answered our prayer. And then we kind of step back and say, uh, is that really? Let me see. You know, so, so there's this, this faith and doubt at play right, right in this little scene. Isn't, isn't that extraordinary? I just love how honest <laughs> the scripture is. Eliezer, I mean, when you look at the big picture, he comes off great. I mean, he's this faithful servant. He goes, he does what his master uh, instructs him. We'll see that uh, he wouldn't even allow himself to eat any food before he had uh, let Na uh, Laban uh, know why he had come. I'm not, uh, this, this is what I'm all about. Uh, he's just so faithful throughout. But here we see a little bit of that thing that we all struggle with, right? Mm -hmm. Lord, let the woman who comes and gives me a drink and then offers to feed my camels, let her be the one. Here comes Rebecca, does exactly that thing, and he says, let me stand back a second and think about whether this might really be what the Lord has. And God is so gracious. Of yes, course, he is. carries through. So he gives her some gifts, and she, she, she says, uh, I'm, I'm the daughter of Bethuel. So she, she makes known to the servant at this point in verse 24 that she is from Abraham's family. He didn't know that when he stepped back to wonder, but now he knows in verse 24. Uh, she says, we have plenty of straw, fodder, room. Come spend the, spend the night. Notice Eliezer's response in 26. The man bowed his head and worshipped Hashem. He said, Blessed be Hashem, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his chesed, again, he has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. There's that word uh, emet in this case, which is often translated truth, but can be faith and faithfulness and its related word, which is probably more frequent, emunah, but faithfulness. This is our God. This is how he is characterized. Even before the wonderful proclamation of his name in Exodus 34, we keep meeting him as the God of steadfast love and faithfulness. He has not forgotten my master Abraham, his steadfast love and faithfulness. As for me, Hashem has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. And the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. So, yeah, Jerry, I think, uh, you know, when, when uh, the servant came in, Abraham's servant came into town, he, I, was, I don't think he was expecting his, uh, his prayer to be answered so quickly. You know, <laughs> he's into town, and now the women are out, out in there. He doesn't have to go spend a night in the town looking. God presented her right there. And this is the one that, that of course, that mm -hmm. Isaac marries. So sometimes our, 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 
And I've had it happen to me before. You know, your, your blessings, your, your prayers are answered very quickly, and you stand back for a message. Is, is, this, is this right? Is this sure? I prayed for it. I mean, it should be some time delay here, but oftentimes God does it immediately. Off the top of my head, I don't know the verse reference, but it doesn't God say in one spot, before you call, I will answer? Yes. He knows what we need before we ask. And that's how he shows us his steadfast love and faithfulness, isn't it? Yes, it is. Adonai Yidreh. Adonai God will provide. Amen. God will provide. And he did right here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and we were commenting earlier, uh, there's, there's so many moments like this that, that uh, the scripture lays out how God does these surprising things. Um, at the surface level, people want to say, oh, what a coincidence. But we understand that there's something much deeper going on than simple coincidence. We are dealing with the sovereign, omniscient, good God who is working all things to the pleasure of his goodwill to bring about the pleasure of his good purposes in Yeshua. So, so the fact that these things happen, not just in the Bible, but to, to everyday people like you and me, uh, where we have suddenly been uh, given that thing that we prayed for and hoped against hope, as Abraham said in Romans, uh, that, that God steps in and provides exactly what's needed. You know, and one thing I, I noticed, Jerry, is that, that one of the reasons why God picked Abraham so that he would teach uh, his family and his household the ways of the Lord. And, and it's also, it's, it's evident here that the, mm -hmm. that, that the uh, servant knew exactly what, what Abraham was wanting and looking for and, and how trusted <laughs> this servant was to him. When Rebecca runs home and tells her family <clears throat> she's uh, been given a couple of gifts, it says uh, Rebecca in verse 29 had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring as soon as he saw the ring and bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, saying, Thus the man spoke to me. He went to Eliezer, to the man. And he was standing by the camels, and he, Laban said, Come in, O blessed of Hashem. Why do you stand outside? I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. And the man came in, <clears throat> skipping down a bit. The food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And that's what I was alluding to earlier. Uh, as, as a good and faithful servant, he would not even satisfy his own natural hunger before he had carried out the wishes of his master. Right? So... <clears throat> This is a remarkable passage of scripture uh, in the sense that what follows here is a retelling of everything that we have just read. And the scripture does this very, very rarely. Uh, and so it, it's noteworthy that uh, Eliezer is given this, is it an honor but respect? for his integrity that he gets to tell the story now from his vantage point and his point his his personal point of view and his experience to talk about the same thing that we've just read about and as i said in, in a lot of ways it's it's almost uh, word for word what what has already been said but he is given the honor of telling this uh for for himself the upshot of it all is <clears throat> 
Well, let me let me. Uh, he 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 gives testimony. I want let me put it that way. Uh, once more to God, uh, in verse forty-eight. After after uh, he tells the part about how Re- Rebecca came out and met him and it was in accordance with the prayer that he had prayed, verse 48, he says, Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord, Hashem, and blessed Hashem, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness, he's talking to Laban now, Laban, if you are going to show my master Abraham the same chesed and emet that he received from God, tell me. If not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. So he kind of puts Laban on the spot. He's just recounted this story how Hashem, the God of heaven and earth, has has poured out chesed and Emmet, steadfast love and faithfulness on Abraham, and then he turns the table on Laban and says, now what about you? (laughs) Will you show steadfast love and faithfulness to Abraham as God has? So Laban's response is, well, it's come from Hashem. We can't speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah's before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son. So he does not resist. Uh, we will meet Laban later on, and he's a real devious character. But here, at least, he seems willing to uh, understand the nature and the will of Hashem and understand that Hashem has apparently led Eliezer to his family, to his, uh, his sister. And so uh, as as the probable male leader in that clan at this point, uh, he releases her to go with Abraham. There was the question that uh, Eliezer posed to Abraham, though, if you recall, what if the young woman isn't willing? And so Rebecca's going to get posed the same question. Um, In verse 55, her brother and mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Don't delay me since the Lord has prospered me. Send me away that I may go to my master. So a little contest has arisen. Uh, Eliezer would like to return immediately. Laban and uh, Rebecca's mother want her to stay a while, you know, get our goodbyes in, I guess. Um, and they finally say, well, let's, let's ask Rebecca. What does she say? Does she want to stay or does she want to go? And so they bring in Rebecca. They said, let us call the young woman, verse 37. They called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent her away with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him so that's a blessing and a prophecy that word offspring in our my esv is our hebrew word seed zera may your seed possess the gate of those who hate him 
so we can understand uh, one of the strands of teaching about Messiah and the coming of the nation of Israel and the establishment of God's kingdom is there's going to be resistance, physical resistance, spiritual resistance. People hate the seed of Rebekah. And we see that playing out in our time. But the promise and the blessing is her seed, Isaac, and through Isaac down to Yeshua, will possess the gates of those who hate him. Now I want to think about Yeshua in particular here because the Bible says that whether we understood it or not, before we came to faith in Yeshua, we hated him. Right? Romans 8. I forget the verse number now. <laughs> but what does it say? God proves his love to us in this fact that while we were still his enemies. What do enemies do? They hate. While we were still his enemies, Messiah died for us. Wow. Isn't this just a cool way to think about one of the hater gates <laughs> that Rebecca's seed finally came to possess was me, was you, yes. was all our listeners who have come to faith in Yeshua. This ancient, ancient blessing is coming true today in Yeshua and all the people who follow him as Messiah. That's just great. And uh, uh, he, he reconciled us to him and to each other and, and eliminated the enmity or the hostility between us and, and God himself. Right. So I think that's a, it's, a, it's a miracle that happens within the heart that that we experience when that you know when we ask him to come in and i think that um there's two parallels between rebecca and abraham rebecca leaves her family her land mm -hmm. and sojourns to the same land where abraham and isaac are and she also answers the call on her so it is her free will. I will go. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that, that that is really what God is looking f for from us as individuals because the call for faith is to be answered with, here I am, like Hineni, like Abraham mm -hmm. said, or and I will go. I will obey. It's not that by good works we've been saved. It's by grace we have been saved through faith, not by good works so that no one may boast. It is the gift of God, as Ephesians 2 says. And, you know, here we see the angel of the Lord going before Eleazar. That's repeated twice in this choosing Rebecca or choosing Rebecca or pointing to Rebecca. Mm -hmm. So th there's the grace. But what does she say? I will go. In other words, she expresses her faith and her trust to walk in the Lord and to leave her home and her family and her land. You know, there's boldness and courage there. And I think, you know, and then the blessing on her seed to be the mother of thousands and of ten thousands is, you know, what you were talking about in the beginning, 
that the seed isn't just of the man. It's of the woman, too. In fact, in Genesis 3, it is of the woman, right? Well, that's mm-hmm. what makes it such a oxymoronic <laughs> kind of st- phrase is, is when we talk about seed, we generally associate that with the man. But from the very beginning, God has pointed out the upside-down nature of the way he operates, that women are going to get a lot more credit from God than they typically do in society right? The seed of the woman. Um, The whole story can be looked at, I think, as a picture of the Holy Spirit's wooing of a bride for Yeshua. Let's think about this. Abraham, the patriarch, the father, sends out his most trusted servant, on behalf of his son to find a bride suitable for the son. The servant goes and faithfully carries out his mission, goes to the assigned place, offers up a prayer. God brings Rebecca to him. He has this wealth-laden caravan um, that he has brought along to bring gifts to the woman and her family, but also to demonstrate that this is a worthy family she's going to, that Abraham is a wealthy uh, householder, landholder, well, not a landholder, but but a, a wealthy man in his, in his uh, land where he is, um, an important man, right? All those things that would be associated with great wealth. So when the servant shows up, Rebecca is, you know, there's, there's something very lovely about her character in and of itself. Of course, she's, she's willing to just jump right in and offer him the drinks, uh, not just him, but his camels as well. But it, I think it would be naive to suggest that she didn't also recognize that he's carrying, he's representing, he's, he's carrying a lot of wealth with him. He's representing someone wealthy. He's inviting me into a wealthy family, right? right. So, and, and that's the, the good thing about God, I think, is he recognizes who we are and, and that we are motivated by some self-interest. But he can turn that in the right direction, Right. So this is this is the picture. Then Eliezer goes and he, and he represents uh, a, a wealthy man and and he, and he comes uh, to find a bride for the son. And he makes the son attractive because the son is the heir of all things. Right. How like the mission of the Holy Spirit is that? Mm-hmm. The father the God of heaven and earth, who owns a cat, all the cattle on a thousand hills, sends his agent, his most trusted servant, the Holy Spirit, to go and find a bride for his son, Yeshua. And what the Holy Spirit does in his ministry to this potential bride is to present the wealth of the Father 
and the attractiveness of the air. And so when God is at work in the world seeking a bride for his son, the Holy Spirit is out here among us trying to convince our hearts of the wealth of the Father and the beauty of the Son. And we want to say, the wealth of the Father is beyond our imagination. The Bible teaches that everything you are looking at right now is temporary. As glorious as much of what we look at can be, it is tinged by sin and by decay. God is going to make all things new and the glory that we see now is nothing to be compared with the glory that will be revealed. And Paul writes a lot about this. <clears throat> In, in uh, Corinthians, he says, everything that we're going through right now is temporary and not worthy to be compared. We're talking not even about the sufferings that Paul was, but just even the glorious beauty of Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon or man-made wonders like the Taj Mahal. These are glorious in and of themselves. They, they, they show forth the beauty and the truth that God intended for all of us to enjoy all the time but which has been tarnished and tainted and is in a state of perpetual decay because of sin. The Holy Spirit is coming to show us a greater picture and a grander picture and to show us the glory of the eternal God and the eternal majesty and the eternal beauty and truth that he intends to bring us all to. He wants to show us the wealth of the Father but he also wants to us to see the beauty of the sun, the beauty of the air. And this is such a, a, an interesting, interesting conundrum, if you will. Because Isaiah represents Yeshua when he comes to us on earth as having no form or beauty that we should be attracted to him. But the scripture represents him as coming like a lamb to the slaughter. The scripture represents him as taking upon himself our sins and iniquities, taking upon himself the stripes and the, the death that we deserve. And then it shows him ascended and glorious when we read about him in Revelation that amazing figure with the glowing skin and the stark white hair and people are falling down in front of him. We have a little bit of that beauty of the air uh, in Jesus' earthly life on the Mount of Transfiguration. When that, and I, I, I like to think of the, the physical body of Yeshua acts as a protective covering for you and me. Because we could not bear the sight of his full glory. But it is briefly revealed to us on the Mount of Transfiguration. The body of Jesus acts like a welder's helmet, if you will. You know, that the bright light of the welder, uh, uh, <clears throat> the welding machine would, would make us blind, but they have that dark, dark tint. 
the, the body of Jesus acts like those special um, eclipse glasses that you're supposed to wear. We can't behold the glory of the sun with our naked eyes. There's got to be a protective barrier, and that's what the physical body of Jesus is. But there's the seed. <laughs> if we can come back around it, that's the seed that got planted in the ground. That's the seed that came out three days later in a form and a fashion that was previously unimaginable. Take a tomato seed, take a cucumber seed, you put them on a piece of paper, you mix them up, you don't know which is which, you don't know what's coming out. Take any seed at all. Could you imagine that from this little nut, a big oak tree is going to grow? Can you imagine from this frail human body that was inhabited by the eternal God when it gets planted in the ground? Unless a seed is planted in the ground and dies, it stands alone. But if it goes in the ground and dies, it brings forth much, much fruit. And that's the body of Jesus. That's the resurrection of 1 Corinthians 15. That is the seed of the woman in full bloom. The beauty of the sun. That's what we want you to know. That's what we want you to see. The beauty of our Lord Yeshua. Yeah, and... Um so often in the in this natural world, uh, the enemy will have the heirs, you know, fighting over material possessions. When the the when we are called to be heirs of the spiritual possession that is brought to us through Yeshua in the imperishable body, so. As, as Ephesians 15 uh, says, hmm? I mean, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, okay. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that's our New Testament portion. It says, um, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? Fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. As for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is alike, but there is one flesh for human beings, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one thing, and that of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, S-U-N, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. Indeed, star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Yeshua HaMashiach, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the physical and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, Yeshua, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. 
Just as he, as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Ah, that's just uh, such a beautiful summation of what is sown that's perishable, but what is grown or what we grow into when we accept Yeshua as our Lord and Savior and the Holy Spirit fills our heart and works on us as a eventually a spiritual body that is imperishable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you think about it in a particular way, we could say that the life of following Yeshua is a life of constant death and resurrection. Because Yeshua's call is what? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And when he says take up your cross, uh, we have to understand it in the sense that uh, what he's saying is you need to pick up your execution stake and you need to put yourself on it. As Jesus was crucified, we are to crucify ourselves daily. Why? Because if I can be crucified and dead then I can be resurrected in the life and power of Yeshua. And so, so that's really what we're called to each day in our lives, to take up our cross, to die to ourselves, to live to God, right? And so each time that we resist sin, we resist the temptation to lash out, to satisfy some lustly passion, we are killing ourselves, but the life of Christ is being born into us, resurrecting us. And we are progressing towards the final resurrection when Jesus will return and the trumpet will sound and the voice of the archangel and the dead in Christ will rise, right? In the twinkling of an eye, this is the twinkling of an eye passage in, in 1 Corinthians, we shall all be changed. And the perishable this thing that I am struggling with right now to keep on the cross so that it can enjoy resurrection, the perishable will finally put on imperishable. Death, where is thy victory? You know, that, that passage that it ends with, you know, death, where is thy sting? The sting of death is, is sin, I think. All of those battles that we've been fighting to stay true to the Lord by God's grace and the Holy Spirit in us uh, that he gives us. What is is the last verse of 1 Corinthians, our passage today? Thanks be to God who always gives us the victory in Yeshua, right? Yes. All those battles will be done as we awaken into final resurrection glory. Everything that I have endured was temporary, but what is eternal is the gift of God in Yeshua. Friends on the radio, that's what we hope for each one of you, that you know the wealth of the Father and the beauty of his Son, Yeshua, that you have entered into eternal life by faith with him, and that you are experiencing right now those battles to Put your own will to death that you might, like Rebecca, say, I will go, I will follow. And that you will experience the resurrection victory on a day-to-day basis that Jesus says is our inheritance as a down payment, if you will, for the final resurrection that God is going to give to all who know the Son. 
If you'd like to receive Jesus as your Savior, i just ask you to pray this simple prayer. Father, I thank you for your beautiful Son who died on a cross to save me from my sins. I ask you now in the name of Jesus, forgive me, cleanse me, fill me with your Holy Spirit, and I will serve you like Eliezer served Abraham by the power of your Spirit in me. I ask it in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Contact us at One New Man Ministries International on Facebook. Let us know what you think. We're so glad you were here. God bless you.